you had perceived that the student was writing at a whole different level than they had before. And that's where I think, especially right now, the teacher eyes and the teacher brain, being able to see and watching the student's progress over time to see what their writing should look like or what their own personal writing does look like, that may be the best way of detecting it. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner. Hey, Brad. Hey, Tiffany. Last week, we welcomed to the show Matt Miller to talk about AI for educators. And today we have part two with Matt. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me back again. If you didn't have a chance to catch last week's episode, you're going to want to go back, listen into that one, and then join us for part two. But without further ado, let's get back into the conversation. So if I were to create an image or let's say an essay, what kind of obligations do I have to inform the viewer or the reader that this was generated by some form of AI? That's a great question. And it's really an ethical question that we as uh, writers and creators have been dealing with long before AI. If you look things, if you read other books or magazine articles or journal articles or something like that, academic research, to what extent have those ideas influenced you and do those get called out in your final product? If you're citing them, to what extent do you need to cite? And do you quote and do you paraphrase and everything? Some of those same questions are still around now when it comes to AI. The, the other thing is that I think sometimes we have an all or nothing kind of black and white approach to thinking about how students might have used AI to help with their work. And I think that a lot of times when we haven't learned a lot about AI, one of the first places we go is we think about what, what we'll call, for lack of a better term, copy-paste cheating. It's like the teacher gives a writing prompt, the student takes the writing prompt and feeds it to an AI assistant like ChatGPT and then copies the response and sticks it into a document and turns it into the, the teacher. That's the, the most egregious negative use of AI, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And there's a variety of ways of looking at this. And then you just have to make judgment calls, I think, to some extent, unless, of course, you have some policy in place on it. For instance, what if you use an AI assistant like ChatGPT to come up with some ideas for your paper, but you end up being the one who runs with those ideas? Do those get called out? And the, does your AI use get called out there? For me personally, I think the answer to that is no, because if I went out on the internet and just read about the general ideas of a specific topic, but then I went and I wrote the paper myself, I'm not going to say, oh, and by the way, I read through these specific articles to get ideas for my paper. But at some point, you don't disclose that. The other example of that I like to give is if you're getting ready to go try to get a job and you have a career coach try to help you polish up your resume, you don't put a disclaimer on the resume that says this resume was supported by the help of a career coach. At some point, you don't have to disclose this stuff. And I think that it's that way with AI. Now, 
just because I started with that example doesn't mean that I think that you shouldn't disclose your use of AI. So let's say that we use a large language model and the student copies a, a paragraph that they wrote themselves and sticks it into the AI and says, can you give me any feedback for how I could have written this more clearly or help me identify any errors? With that, I don't think that we we necessarily need to disclose our, our use of AI either. But if we start to go a little bit further and let's say that let's say that now we're starting to do some bullet points of these are the things that I want would want included in a draft of an essay or a paper. And so you've got the ideas, and then you have artificial intelligence generate a draft based on those ideas. And again, this is the kind of activity that we have to start thinking about. What was the effort that was given? What was the skill necessary based on the student's intellect that came out of this activity? They came up with the ideas and they may have adjusted and edited it. In that case, there's been some pretty heavy AI use. So then what do we do with that? Are we okay with that in the first place? I think we've also got to think about what kind of work did the student do on their side? So if that's the case, I think in that particular instance, we would almost have to be prescribed in that particular learning activity that this is what you want to do. So anyway, I bring those couple examples up just to say that there's an awful lot of nuance when it comes to all of this. And I think it's up to definitely the teacher and the student to have an understanding on how much AI should be used in the activity and in what way. And when you start to do that, really, you start to create a little bit of a culture in your own particular learning community, whether that's your own classroom or in your own institution or whatever. You start to create a culture of saying, this is what we stand for. This is what is okay. This is what isn't okay. You're trying to say this is a tool and these are the ethical ways of using it. So that in a vacuum, a lot of times when students have a tool like a large language model to help them to do work, they don't know any better. I think that's when they start to tend towards, I'm going to use it in ways that help me avoid this classwork. Anyway, <laughs> that's a great big, great big topic that, that you opened up. And I think I, I touched on a handful of things. It's something we could probably do this entire show over, I bet, is on that particular topic. But hopefully those are just a couple of thoughts I have in mind when it comes to that. Very helpful. And let me ask you one more though. Is there a way to reverse engineer this so that if I'm a teacher and the student submits something that I perceive to be way above their previous abilities, can I find out somehow whether or not this was generated through AI? That's another one of the big questions. And especially when ChatGPT came onto the scene, there were lots of teachers who wanted an AI detector. That's the plagiarism detectors that we have, stuff right. like turn it in. And they wanted to be able to plug the student work into this AI detector to figure out if it worked. And so like a good capitalistic society, the market has a desire for a product. And so what, what happens? The market bears a product. <laughs> it's a supply and demand thing, right? There are lots of those tools out there. If you look for AI detectors or whatever, there's a whole bunch of them. What we've found 
And there's actually been academic research on this, but then also just anecdotal, try it out and see yourself. What everybody is finding is that they are wildly inaccurate. What happens is that they throw all of these false positives and false negatives, either saying that humans created it, but it was actually AI or the reverse, that AI created it, but it was actually humans. And it's to the point now where, and I know that there are lots of educators out there that want to use this as either a punitive tool or as some sort of vetting process to see how much the student actually did. The reality is that A, it's like I said earlier, it's wildly inaccurate. And so if you get one of those, I think it's one of the, the false positives where it says that AI created it, but the student actually created it. Just think if you call a student into your office and you say, hey, look, this AI detector says that huge amounts of your paper were done by artificial intelligence. But if the student actually did it themselves, think about the damage that happens to the relationship there. And that one student isn't going to keep it to themselves. They're probably going to go tell everybody that will hear how unfair their instructor was uh, at claiming that artificial intelligence had done this thing that they, they had actually done. That's the kind of thing that I worry about, especially whenever we lean on these things too much. Now, Brad, you brought up an interesting point where you said that you had perceived that the student was writing at a whole different level than they had before. And that's where I think, especially right now, the teacher eyes and the teacher brain, being able to see and watching the student's progress over time to see what their writing should look like or what their own personal writing does look like, that may be the best way of detecting it. And so what I found teachers mostly using these tools for is the beginning of a conversation. And maybe yeah. not necessarily punitively, but a beginning of a conversation to say, hey, look, this is what I see. A, I see with my own eyes that this doesn't look like what you've done before. And B, this AI detector claims that lots of it may not have been written by you. So let's have a conversation about, is it the fact that you didn't feel like you could do it? Is there a lack of motivation? Is there something that you don't understand? Because out in the real world, if you just farm things out to artificial intelligence, there's concerns about that. And the, the obsolescence thing comes into play. So if, you, if it opens up a conversation like that, I think maybe that's the best use of it. But really, if you want to use it to say, with certainty that a student has used AI or hasn't, it's tricky. And then also, in addition to that, I promise I'll stop this after this last point. But in addition to that, it's also if AI creates a, a draft for you and the student remixes it and puts their own spin on it or introduces entire paragraphs of their own, there's different variations. So there's different percentages of AI being used in that case. What happens if it's 50-50 where the student has created half of it and AI has created half of it? Or what if I, I can easily hear someone saying, then it's 50% cheating and 50% not. But again, <laughs> you've got to look through your tomorrow glasses on that to figure out, is this real, relevant, authentic work being done by people out in the real world in two, five, 10 years down the road. I don't know. It's a whole tricky issue. And I've gone on and on about this, I think long enough. So I'm going to stop, but it is, it's tough to figure out. Yeah. It's a good segue to back to the book. You offer, it's my favorite part, actually, a, a plagiarism continuum to help people break the traditional way of viewing plagiarism as either you cheated or you plagiarized, I should say, or you didn't. 
but to show various, what is plagiarism? Is it, if you use it for ideas, is it, is it in this case, and what would you do in your own work as a professional or as an educator? So that's just a nod to that section of your book, which is really helpful. Yeah. And can I just mention real quick, I just created a new post just within the last, oh gosh, like week or two or something that takes that same continuum that I have in the book and doubles the number of examples in it because I think it has oh, six examples. Yeah. I've got one now that that has 12 examples. So if anybody listening to this wants to see that new one, including a blog post where we discuss all of those at length, you can go to ditchthattextbook.com slash AI dash cheating. That's the link to it. That'll take you directly to it. So you can see the whole thing. So now there's 12 examples instead of six. No, good. Yeah. Excellent. Well, the cheating conversation is important, but let's with our remaining time, if we could put on tomorrow's glasses and ask how can we help our students leverage generative AI and equip them for a workforce where they're either expected or at least on some level, they are expected to use generative AI as it's integrated in everyday tools like Microsoft tools and in Google? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so glad that we're answering this question or at least discussing it. Maybe not answering. We don't have like concrete, <laughs> perfect answers. It's like what I was saying earlier, imperfect answers are probably the best thing that we, we can get right now. But I think for one, just having conversations about it and its place in the classroom, but then also its place in the workforce and in the kind of work that they're preparing to do. I think that is crucial. And I know a lot of times we go, oh, I have so much curriculum to get through. I have the syllabus to get through. I don't have time to talk about AI. But the reality is that AI is going to play a part in just about every single type of work that there is to be done in the future. So I think having some of those conversations about what we view as ethical and responsible and what we view as ir irresponsible and why. There, there are all of these great conversations to be had about how we do our work in the right way and how AI fits into all of that. So I think that some of those conversations definitely need to happen. I think another thing we can do is model appropriate AI use. And so if that means that if you're asking the question, well, how do I even model it if I don't even know how it's used? I think, first of all, you just start using it. You start trying it out and you see what you like about it, and what you don't like about it. And Maybe even you start talking to people in the field that students will be entering and saying, how is this being used? And what do you like about it? And what do you not like about it? And then once you've got the feel for that, you just start to model it in class. So maybe that means, like I was saying earlier, putting it up on the projector screen as an extra voice in class. Or if you were preparing yourself for a class to teach a class and you used AI to help you understand something or to explain something, maybe you just are honest with the students and say, hey, and I don't say honest as in you've done anything wrong, but it's maybe the, the better word is transparent, just so that they don't have this stigma of AI equals cheating all the time. Really, AI equals doing things more efficiently or outsourcing things that are not the best use of our human brains. That's the way that I see it whenever it's used best. And so in that case, if you've done some of that, you're just letting them know. Because if we don't talk about it and if we don't model it, 
then all of a sudden students are left to figure it out on their own. And sometimes that leads to the path of least resistance, but sometimes it also means that we're not using the tool in the best ways that it could be used because we just can't picture it that way. So I think those are two things that that we can definitely do to, to help students prepare is to, to understand how it can be used, you know, to have that, that those transparent conversations, but also to model it for students so that they see how it can, how it really can be used responsibly. So is it safe to assume that a tool like ChatGPT, for example, is generating a response to your prompt based upon all of the knowledge and information that has been posted on the internet, pulling from that, synthesizing it, and then offering a response? Yeah, you're definitely on the right track for sure. So there's a few things at play here whenever a, a large language model creates a response. One of the places it starts, and actually being able to break a couple of these things down will help us understand the responses that it gives us. So one thing that's important to know is about the data set. The data set is the collection of information that an AI model uses, especially large language models. I actually also video and, and all of the generative AI, it all starts in the data set. The data set is like its library of information. And what we know, since you use ChatGPT as an example, Brad, this I actually have some information on this one. The data set for ChatGPT is about 300 billion words. And it's cobbled together from pages off of the internet, from academic texts, from book collections that are available online, but then also from sites like Wikipedia, and even from certain parts of Reddit, and even people's blogs on Blogger. It runs the gamut. And you'll also notice that some of those are more reputable sources than others. You've got to take what AI gives you with a grain of salt because of that. And it's also good to know what makes the data set up. So if that's what the data set is, if that's where the information comes from, then the question maybe then is, how does it become artificially intelligent? How does it use that information? An AI model like ChatGPT trains on that information using 100 trillion parameters. And here's how you can think of what a parameter is. A parameter is like a knob on an audio mixer board those great big mixer boards that they use in like concert halls and churches and auditoriums and stuff like that. And someone who's skilled at it knows how to turn any one of those knobs just right to affect the sound in the way that they want. That's the way that they train. Once, once an AI model learns and sees all the patterns and consistencies among all of the information inside of its data set, the AI developers are able to use those parameters to adjust the output, the creativity and the tone and the it just like any of that stuff. So all of that stuff plays into the response that we get. And judging by the judging by the AI tool that we use, that may look very different. For instance, ChatGPT is very workmanlike. You give it a task, it gives you a response. It's fairly friendly. There are other AI models, like for instance, there's one called Pi that's trained in more in the art of conversation and the way that humans would make connections and relationships with each other. So it's almost more like your AI buddy, where if you need to talk through something, it's going to respond to it in the same way that a friend might over coffee. 
There's wide varieties of how AI companies have made these models to serve the needs of their users. I think the learning will go on for all of us, hopefully. Yeah, for sure. What's the, I know you're exploring mid-journey right now, but for example, today I have been, this morning, I guess I was reading about all the audiobooks, how AI is using old recordings to transform audiobooks and all the digital narration options that there are now. <laughs> uh, what's the recent news that has you captivated or um, that you're leaning into? I've heard recently that there's going to be a new version of GPT. GPT is the like the, the AI engine or the AI model that a lot of the large language models run off of. And you've heard chat GPT has those letters inside of it. The free version of chat GPT runs off of GPT 3.5. The paid premium version runs off of GPT 4. And I'm hearing that they're starting to get close to GPT 5 which is going to be the next iteration of it. And it just, what GPT-4 was able to do, the leap that it made over the previous version, the free version, just boggled my mind. And now hearing all of the exponential leaps in its ability to, to problem solve and to be creative and do a lot of the things that we thought were special only to human thinking just amazes me and also scares me. But that's probably one of the, the big things. And the just to think that they're almost to this, I've seen three iterations of it since ChatGPT came out. There's been, like I said earlier, GPT 3.5, GPT 4, and then now they're talking about GPT 5. And the fact that they've had these three iterations in such a short amount of time just makes me go, wow, if that's the case, and I'm trying to like extrapolate that out into the future and go, what is this going to be able to do in a short amount of time? That's, it's that like existential crisis of what does it mean to be a human? And what am I going to be able to do that the AI isn't? And what's my role in the world, in my life? Sorry, I didn't mean to get too philosophical on you. But when I hear that kind of news, that's where my mind goes first. I think it's important. And we definitely have listeners who have been thinking this entire podcast that all the content is good, but they're still really wrestling with those underlying philosophical questions. And that just tells us we got to have you back. We got to keep talking about this <laughs> in the months and years to come. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for your commitment and your courage to exploring this topic and, and being an early adopter, but also just someone that's willing to go out, like you said, and try it and share what you like and what you don't. And offer ideas for how to use it, how to look at it. We're thankful. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And that's really all I'm trying to do. I'm just learning out loud with everybody else. <laughs> and I think, I honestly think that's our best hope as educators on whatever level it may be that if we learn things and we try things and they don't work or they do work. The best thing we can do is just share them with others so that we can all, mm -hmm. I think that's how we adapt to this at scale is we, we do, we do that same thing. So that's really all I'm yeah. trying to do is just learn out loud with everybody else. And I think the more that we do that, maybe the better off we are, but thank you. And I'm so thrilled that I've gotten to chat with you all about this today. Well, thanks for being with us, Matt. We appreciate it. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah, thank you. And to all of our listeners, we are definitely going to have some links to ditchthattextbook.com and other sources of Matt's work for you available. 
Please tune in next week for a new guest, new topic on the Digital to Learn podcast. We will see you then. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.